I remember when I was six years old, and we went on a trip to the southeast United States, and uh, I was with my, my grandparents, my nanny and papa, as we call them. And uh, we were on this trip, and I didn't realize at the time the significance of the trip, but as I look back, I realized just how huge uh, the time that I spent with them on that trip was, because shortly before we took that trip to Florida and Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina, I don't know how many of you have gone to that part of the United States, um, my grandmother, she was diagnosed with MS, a specific form of MS called Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, some of you may remember uh, Lou Gehrig was a baseball player, famous baseball player, and he got sick. And uh, they couldn't really put a finger on what was, was going on with him, and ultimately they ended up naming this disease after Lou Gehrig, but it's a form of MS. And as I think back on my experiences of watching my grandmother, who they told uh, when she contracted the disease that she would have a year to two years to live, and then she ended up living eight, almost eight and a half years uh, six and a half of those years, sitting in a chair, only able to move her pinkies and her eyelids, uh, a breathing machine giving her breath into her lungs, a tube that went into her belly, uh, which they poured liquid mills into, and that would give her nourishment to keep her alive, uh, 24-hour nursing care, My, a grandfather who literally waited on her hand and foot. And I just remember... Along the way, even as a child, thinking, this is not right. This woman who I love so dearly, but beyond that, she loves people. She loves life. She's such a blessing to so many. And yet, to watch her suffer. And not just her, but her husband, who lost his wife, basically, uh, in many forms. I mean, just, she was a a blob. She was a body that couldn't do anything but, but think And as I said, move her eyes and her pinkies. And so we communicated to her through an eye chart. A little chart, we would go down and find the letters, and it would slowly but surely, painfully, like we would come up with some some sort of phrase and try to, was that right? Yes. And in the process of all that, my grandfather, a year before she actually passed away, at this point I was an eighth grader, and he had not told us that he had, was having some pain in his abdomen. And by the time he told us, and they convinced him to go to the doctor, they told him, listen, you have liver cancer, and you might live six to eight weeks, and he lived four. I don't know your story, but I've got a feeling that every single one of us in here have a story. A story of pain and suffering, a story that didn't make sense, Or maybe today you're in the middle of a story that doesn't make sense to you. And you realize that life, in many, many ways, it stinks. When you have to deal with the pain that comes. And it's not always physical pain in this way. There's suffering that comes in many forms. But for me, even as a child, I knew that there's something wrong with the world in which we live. This morning I wanted to talk about this issue of the problem of pain and suffering. Because I know that every person in here is dealing with it. In fact, as a pastor, um, I'm a human being just like you. I don't get a free pass. I'm not exempt from dealing with pain and suffering in my life. And here's what I know is that the majority of times that I get a a phone call from someone needing help, it's usually not a positive phone call. 
It's usually something about my marriage is falling apart or I'm dealing with death. Uh, I'm dealing with this, this hardship. I'm dealing with this struggle with my kids, trying to parent them. It's chaotic. It's crazy. And I don't know. What, I just know personally that many of the people that I interact with, they have problems. And I want you to know that Redemption City Church, as Harley said, we are a family of Jesus followers pointing people to life in him. But we're not a perfect family. We've got lots of issues, if you will. And as I like to say a lot, that I am in myself jacked up in many ways because I know that I have issues in my life where I struggle with selfishness and pride and, and even, at times, doubts and fears. I know it's probably not appropriate for a pastor to say that, but I want you to know that I'm on the level playing field with you this morning that we all struggle and that the pains of this world really cause us to ask some real gut-level questions. Do I believe in God? You see, the problem, if you've got your listening guide there this morning, is that we need to understand that no one gets exempt from this question and this problem of pain and suffering. You see, as Christians, the reason why this is such a common question for us, and maybe one of the primary reasons why people walk away from God and say, I can't believe in God, especially not the God of the Bible, is because either God is loving, but he's not all-powerful, or he's all-powerful, but he's not loving. But either way, he can't be both. You tracking with me? You hearing what I'm saying? You see, this is the problem. When we look at God, we think about the fact that he, the Bible teaches us that he's loving, that his love never fails, that his love never gives up, that his love is never ending. His love, in fact, John 3.16, one of the most foundational verses in the Bible that we read, it says, God loved the world, for God so loved the whole world. But then, hardships come. And we say, God, why? Why do I feel unloved right now? You see, because the other part of the problem is that the Bible also tells us he's not only loving, but it tells us that he's powerful. Not only powerful, but all-powerful, that nothing is greater than him. And so we face a struggle, we face a trial, we face a difficulty, and we cry out to God, and we find ourselves on our knees and our faces, because here's what I've discovered, is that even people who say they don't believe in God, when crisis hits, they still tend to look up. They still, still tend to say, okay, God, if, if you're out there, maybe they say things like, if you're out there, I've heard so many people who've come and put their personal faith in Jesus Christ through a hardship and through a difficulty because they just like they didn't have anywhere else to turn. So what is it? Is God loving but not all powerful? Is he all powerful but not loving? Do you see the difficulty of this question? The difficulty of this reality? I want to read to you from a passage from First Peter this morning because honestly I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers, and I think that it's very unhelpful for Christians to stand up in front of people and say things like, well, you just have to trust. Especially in the moment of our pain. Especially in the moment of our suffering, right? I mean, have you ever been in the midst of a hardship and somebody just walked up to you and just said, it's going to be okay, and then they just said, hey, just, you know, God works things get together for good. And I believe that is true. But there's a, a very profound story where Jesus, he is held up doing ministry, and he's got friends, Mary and Martha, who are trying to get him to come because his friend Lazarus is dying. 
And they go to him and they're like, Jesus, like, come. They send messengers. They say, come on, come back. Lazarus is dying. Come and do something about it. And Jesus doesn't come. And he shows up too late. And you know what? They express some of the emotions that we feel sometimes when God doesn't answer our prayers. What are they? They're angry. They're frustrated. But what's interesting about the story to me, we don't have enough time to talk about all the ins and outs of that particular story, is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he sees Mary and Martha, and it says he weeps. In fact, it's the shortest verse in all of the Bible. And Jesus wept. And here's what I want you to know today. That in the midst of pain and suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty, you have a God who cares. And he's taught us that the worst thing we can do sometimes is is simply try to show up and give people a bunch of answers. But to be present and to love and just to weep with people, to mourn with people, to hurt with people. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to hang out for just a little bit. And we're going to bounce around to a couple other texts. But I want to start in verse 3, and just hang with me for a sec as I read through this passage, and then we come back to refer to it a few times. This is what it says. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials so that genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes through refined by, in, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him, though you have not seen him, and though you seeing him now, no, not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated and they inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Catch this. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Angels desire to look in to these things. I'm fascinated by that last sentence. Angels desire to look into these things. So, we have a problem of pain and suffering. And if you don't believe in God, if you're here as a visitor today, and you know I don't really be, buy this whole God thing, let me just say, again, this is a safe place to be. It's a place to wel- you're, that you're welcome to be here. It's a place that we can wrestle through those questions and difficulties. But I also want you to know that in the midst of all that, you don't get a free pass from dealing with pain and suffering if you take God out of the equation. Are you with me? Just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean that you get to say pain and suffering doesn't exist. In fact, I would actually argue that it's even a bigger problem if you don't believe in God. Because what do you do? What's the purpose? What's the point behind pain and suffering? And how do we even decide if it really is pain and suffering, if there's not a good and evil, if there's not 
a way of viewing the world through a lens that's bigger and more transcendent than we are. But here's the truth. The Bible, I believe, gives us some great insight into how we can learn about pain and suffering. And, and I'm just going to say on the front end, I'm not going to be able to answer every question that's in your mind today, every question that comes to your heart. And so as Harley said, I just encourage you, find a discussion group, uh, get connected to some other people where you can sit down and you can talk through these things, you can work through them yourselves. John Stott says this in his book, The Cross of Christ, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith, and it has been in every generation. In in its distribution and degree, appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and his love. You see, he's asking the same question. He's talking about the same thing that we we, we are hitting on this morning, which it seems like God does some things sometimes and and at other times he doesn't. Sometimes he seems to answer some people's prayers, and other times he doesn't. Sometimes he seems to, to heal some people, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he seems to move and protect those who are hurting, and sometimes it seems like he doesn't. What is it? When is God being just, and when is he being loving? <laughs> we don't really know. But here's what I do know. The Bible tells us some important things that we can do, can, we can, um, we can take to the bank and we can understand about suffering. First, it reminds us and shows us where suffering comes from. Where suffering comes from. Now, I love this passage and I hate this passage because one, it gives me some insight into what's going on in the world around me, but two, it reminds me that we live in a broken, messed up world. Okay? But in Genesis chapter 3, um, let me set this up for you a little bit. Genesis 1 and 2 are the story of creation. That God creates everything, that it says in the Bible that he speaks the world into existence, which is amazing. That our God, our creator, he just speaks and things come into being, all right? And he gives people one rule. Anybody have any idea what that one rule was? Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? One rule. How many of you wish there were only one rule in life still? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? It'd be awesome if there was only one rule, but there's not. And here's why. He gives them one rule, and he says, don't eat from this particular tree. But what do they do? They eat from it. Now, there's a lot behind all this. But they disobey, and therefore God said to them, if you, ate, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And they eat from the tree. But instead of physically dying in that moment, God is merciful and he's gracious, but he's also just. So he gives them some discipline. But I want you to notice this. It says this in verse 12, as God is approaching them. He says, then the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, so I ate it. Now, do all of you men hear that in this room? What does that tell us about our our lives? Don't listen to women? No, I'm just kidding, right? No, the man passively sits by while his wife steps up and makes a decision, and he just sits there and lets her do it. And then, once she makes the decision and God holds who accountable? The man. He blames her. Not only does he blame her, he actually blames God. He says, God, the woman you gave me, 
wow. Okay, God, like, you know, this is pretty strong. Adam's not only saying, this, this woman led me astray, but God, the woman you gave me. Anybody in here blame shift? Anybody like to serve it off on somebody else? Absolutely. We've been doing it from the beginning. It's not a shocker. It's not a surprise because this is who we are. We tend to want to put it on somebody else. It's their fault when things go wrong. It's their fault when things go bad. And that's exactly what happened. But I want you to specifically see now, as you jump down to verse 17. Here's what it says. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor. And all the women said, thanks, right? My wife has had five kiddos, and I do not envy her in that at all. It says that you will have painful labor all the days of your life. Um, It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. And so we know that in this, not only will we have pain from work, but also just above that, it says that, that literally women will have intense, intensified labor pains. So we all have pain now in the labor that we have in this life, and that it will produce, the, the, the land will produce thorns and thistles for us. Here's what I want you to understand, is that the source of pain and suffering, the source, where it comes from, is really threefold, okay? First, it comes from our own sin. It comes from our own sin. Isn't it interesting that as human beings, we love to hold everybody else accountable, but we want to let ourselves off the hook? How often do I want to make sure that somebody else pays for the things that they do that are unjust, and yet at the same time, I want people to be merciful and gracious and forgiving towards me, right? But here's the reality is that pain and suffering comes from my sin. How many times have I hurt people in my life? Far too many to count. How many times have I said something? How many times have I done something? How many times have I been deceptive and wounded someone? How many times have I physically inflicted pain on somebody? My brother would say a lot. Um, How many times have we done things in our world where we have caused others to have pain and suffering? truth of the matter is, is most of us in this room can say a lot. If we're honest, our sin causes pain. I want you to understand something. When God created the world, he did not create a world with pain and suffering. He didn't create a world with all the sickness and all the destruction. He created a world that was beautiful and it was perfect. It didn't have to deal with tsunamis and earthquakes They didn't have to deal with tornadoes. They didn't have to deal with some of the stuff that we've seen even this year as I think about more Oklahoma. didn't create a world like that. But our sin, our rebellion against God and his ways, that's what brought suffering into the world. And so it's easy for us to be like Adam sometimes and say, God, you did this. And God says to mankind, no, you rebelled against me. And your sin, your sin is what opened the door. And it's easy for me to say, well, no, that was Adam and Eve's sin. The truth of the matter is, if I was in the garden, I would have done the same thing. Because I'm broken in that way. It's not only my sin, but it's others' sin that brings suffering. Not just my personal sin, but others. This is one that we can resonate with a little bit more, right? We, We can all kind of sit here and say, yes, like, I get this. Other people hurt me. How many of us have been wounded by someone? And all the hands in the room go up, right? Both hands. 
Because we've all been wounded. We've all been lied to. We've all been told things that, that are, were hurtful, that were painful. And here's the, the, the hard part, is that some of the most painful things we've experienced have come from people who we love the most. People that are closest to us. People that we care about deeply. And they wound us, and suffering comes through that. But the Bible also tells us that it's not just our sin, and it's not just others' sin, but it's a cursed world. Remember when he said a while ago, we read that in Genesis 3, that the ground is cursed. That there are tsunamis, there are earthquakes, there are difficulties, there are natural disasters that come. And it's all a sign that the world that we live in is cursed and it's broken. So, this morning we know that the Bible gives us an answer for where sin comes from. And let me remind you again, whether you think you are a good person or not, whether you think that you are a person of integrity or not, whether you think that you're a good father, a good husband, um, a good worker, listen, none of us get a free pass from dealing with the fallout of this. In fact, let's look at the world at large and think about the number of innocent children that are dying today because they can't get enough food in their bellies. Or let's think about those in countries where they have oppressive governments and they're innocent in a sense, and yet the governments are oppressing them by keeping them from having what they need to live. Or for that matter, let's think about the Syria question that's going on right now and the issues that are there and innocent men, women, and children who are killed by, because of, of sin, sinfulness and brokenness in our world. No one gets a free pass from this. But the second thing that we learn from the Bible, and this is so critical, the second thing that we learn is when suffering will come to an end. When suffering will come to an end. If, if the beginning was perfect and beautiful and without suffering, but then mankind sinned and brought suffering into the world because God kept his word, he said there will be consequences if you disobey. And there has been ever since. But there is a day when suffering will come to an end. Anybody excited about that? Anybody thankful that there's a day coming when all this broken stuff is going to be made right? And here's why. Because in the passage that I read, you, read to you from Peter, 1 Peter 1, he says something there that's really significant. He says to us, in verse, last half of verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. You hear what he's saying? That we are going to inherit, if we believe in God, we are going to inherit a new way of life, a new life in Christ that is imperishable, uncorruptible, unfading. All the stuff that gets messed up and that is marred by sin in this world is going to be restored. Now, here's, here's one thing that's important for me to understand and for you to understand about this. Listen, I am not a person who walks around and says that all this world is evil and it's bad and it's terrible. I know some Christians that do that. And all they say is like, oh, the world is so terrible. Oh, this place is so junky. So, listen, God says that he's going to restore this world. He's going to restore it. He's going to restore the heavens and the earth. But here's the beautiful thing. When he restores it, it's going to be restored the way he intended it to be. Without the pain and the suffering. Without the mess that we've made of it. 
I don't know about you, but that's kind of cool to think about. That, that all the creation that is broken and messed up is going to be made right. And, and we know in this passage, he says that first and foremost, we can have hope in this because he came out of the grave. That Jesus was resurrected and he secured this for us. Listen, the crux of all of Christianity, the, the crux of our faith, the, the, the defining moment for you as a person who has to determine, am I going to believe in the God of the Bible or not, is the question, did Jesus come out of the grave? Did Jesus come out of the grave when he was crucified? If he did, everything else can, can, is plausible, right? Because that's the craziest, most uh, erroneous, if you will, miracle ever to, to be. And if we can believe that, we can believe everything else about the Bible. And so I challenge you that if you don't believe in God, go and investigate that question. Go and ask that question. But because I believe in God this morning, my proclamation to you is because Jesus came out of the grave, we have hope that one day we're going to get a new life and it's not going to look like this life. It's not going to be full of sickness and pain and suffering. In fact, Revelation 21 says this. This is verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice. This is the very end of the Bible, by the way. And the beautiful thing for us as believers is that we know the end of the story. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne of, saying this, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will be with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, and he will be their God, and he will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. The longhorns will never lose. Grief, crying, oh, I think that's what it says. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Isn't that an awesome passage? If you believe in God and you believe in Jesus Christ, this is the hope we cling to. That one day, all the pain, all the tears, all the sorrow, all the stuff in this world that has hurt us is going to be removed. And so we know, according to the scripture, that this is going to get better. It's going to be made right. But the third thing is this. The Bible shows us how to deal with suffering today. Because some of you are sitting here going, okay, look, look, look. Thanks for giving me that explanation of where it came from. Uh, thanks for helping me know that there's going to be a future. But, like, I live right now. Like, I live in 2013, and, and life is hard right now. I mean, I've got sick family members right now. I'm struggling to get a job to pay the bills right now. Um, I'm, I'm having a hard time just dealing with the things that are going on in life right now. Central Texas allergies are driving me crazy today, right? My bank account doesn't have enough money in it right now. That's who we are. We live right now. So looking back helps to know that this is the, the problem. And looking ahead, looks, it helps because it reminds us this is the solution. But what about now? Well, let me just say to you what the Bible reminds us of consistently. And that is this. There is a God who understands our suffering. There is a God who understands our suffering. In the first Peter passage, again, he says to us there something that's very helpful to me personally as I wrestle with my own struggles dealing with pain and suffering. 
He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or circumstances the Spirit of Christ was indicating, within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. What is he saying there? Who's the Messiah according to the Bible? Jesus. And what is he saying the Messiah is going to do? Suffer. Now, this was written post-Jesus Christ's suffering on the cross. But let me tell you this. We have a God who understands suffering. Because Jesus, who is God, and who is God's Son, he suffered. And why did he suffer? He suffered for us. He suffered for us. If you think there is no one who understands my pain, and believe me, in the midst of suffering, sometimes you really feel that way, don't you? You really feel like nobody really gets this. Nobody understands this. Nobody, nobody really understands what I'm going through. I understand they've got their issue, but nobody really understands. Listen, every ounce of suffering you've ever experienced pales in comparison to the suffering that Jesus Christ has suffered for you. And here's why. Because he took every bit of suffering in this world upon himself so that he could make it right, so that he could fix it, not leave us in the mess, not leave us in a hopeless state, not leave us without joy or without answers, but to remind us that he loves us. So here's the thing. We have a God who understands suffering, but we also have a God who is with us in the suffering. And this may be the most profound thing I could say this morning for some of you, because I know that in the midst of suffering, even though many times we say, God, would you just give me an answer? Like, would you just write it in the clouds? Like, would you just kind of speak down into my living room as I'm sitting here? Would you just, like, talk to me and give me an answer for my suffering? What we need more than an answer, more than an explanation of what's going on, is we need the presence of a real God who can do something about it. In Isaiah 43, it's a passage where the prophet Isaiah is writing about the people of Israel and how God is speaking to them. And here's what he says. He says this in verse 1. Now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I will be with you. Catch this. I will be with you when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the rivers. They will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire. Now that's very similar to what Peter has just said when he said that your life, your faith in God is refined by what? By fire. And maybe, maybe just maybe, Peter had in his mind not only this passage from Isaiah, but maybe the story that we find in the book of Daniel, where three young men decided in their hearts they would not turn away from God no matter what, and the king decreed, no, you will not worship any other gods but worship me. And these guys said, no way. And so they said, we're going to throw you into what? Fiery furnace. Remember this? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's the crazy thing. They start to throw them into this furnace. And even the guys who are throwing them in literally begin to die because of the heat coming out of the furnace. It's hard for me to even begin to fathom this, begin to imagine what was going on. And they're all watching this thing and it's unfolding. They're throwing these three guys in. Guys are dropping dead because of the heat. And they look up and they look into the furnace. And they threw three men in. And the king says, why are there four? And one of them looked like son of God. 
And I've thought about that. And I've thought about that image and how much I need to remember that. That when I am going through the, t- the trials and the tests in my life, the fires, if you will, that I can know that there is a God who is with me in those fires, in those struggles, in those trials. And you can know that too. Every single one of you in this room can know that there is a God who is with you and who will not abandon you because he says in his word, he will not leave us, he will not forsake us. And I have to cling to that. You know, C.S. Lewis says it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our consciences. But he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Here's what I know about my life and about your life. If everything was always going smoothly, we would never see our need for God. Would you agree with that? I mean, if everything was going good and we could just do everything without any problems, there were never hiccups, there were never struggles, there were never crisis, there was never pain, never suffering, no physical issues, no spiritual issues, no mental issues. If those things never happened, guess what? I believe we would never look up. But it's in the hardship that makes me look up. As one man, I don't even know who said, said it at one point, there's no atheist in foxholes. That in an army in a war, when there's bombs going off and bullets being fired, people know, I better know there's something on the other side of this thing. And it's in our hardships, it's in our struggles, that we learn that there's a God who's with us. Not only that, but listen, think about it in your life. Would you say that you have grown more in your life, personally, when things are going well or when they're going poorly? When things come together so easily, is that when you're really growing as a human being and really seeing um, maturing, maturity come into your life? Or are you seeing it when it comes to the hardships, the difficulties? You see, here's the thing I've noticed. We love to celebrate other people's suffering stories. Stories where we read books, we watch movies, and we, we celebrate people's lives that have gone through hardship and struggle, and they've come out on the other side of it with these beautiful testimonies, these beautiful stories, and we're like, oh, that's so awesome. And then when it happens to us, we're like, what are you doing, God? Why me? Why are you messing with my world? And my, my thought to you is, could it be that God's not picking on you, but that he's growing you. That God has, is using your circumstances. Could it be, I don't know God's mind, I don't know God's heart, but could it be that he's put you in that trial, in that fire, so that other people will see the beautiful story that will be written in your life? That other people will see Christ and see the hope you have, even in the face of that. So why do we, pay, why do we struggle? Why is pain and suffer, suffering part of our life? Let me just close with this. We don't know. As Christians, we don't know. And if there's ever a Christian who stands in front of you and they start saying, here's, here's this, 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 and they put it all together and they make this nice little, nice little package answer for you, run away. Because they're not God. But here's what I do know. The answer cannot be that God doesn't love you. The answer cannot be that God does not care. Because the Bible tells us 
that in our suffering, he came to us. He pursued us. He put on this flesh, this, this depraved flesh that we wear, right? He put on his flesh. He came down and he suffered on the cross. And so for once, once and for all, all time, the cross declares and demonstrates to the world, God loves us. So it can't be that. It can't be that God doesn't care. It can't be that God doesn't love us. But here's what I know. If you are struggling with pain and suffering today, and it would be, I I wouldn't be surprised if there's some people in this room that are desperate enough that literally you just want life to end right now. Because that's just how it can be sometimes. Know that there's a God who loves you. Know that there's a God who has a plan for you. He didn't break this thing, we did. But I can guarantee you, with 100% confidence that he is fixing it. And he's going to restore it. And you can put your hope in him. He says something that's very profound in 1 Peter. As he says to us that Jesus, as he comes, he has his eyes fixed on the purpose of giving us a living hope. Giving us a, a hope that can, can help us today. And as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, That for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now let let me just briefly explain what that means. That Christ had joy in the face of the cross because he knew what it was going to do for you and for me. He knew the issues it was going to resolve for us today. He knew the restoration that was going to come through his body being broken and his blood being shed. So I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you've done to your life to screw it up because <laughs> I'm sure there are things in, like my life, I've got consequences that I'm still dealing with because of my own sin. And then there's other people that are hurting me and other people that, that I'm hurting. There's other people that, that are probably hurting you. And then we just deal with just things like the world being broken and cursed and we just don't, we just scratch our heads and we say, God, how, why, how long? But you know today there's a God who loves you. He has a plan, he has a purpose for your life. And Romans 8 says this. It says that nothing can separate us from God's love. No height, nor depth, no powers, nothing in all creation can, can separate us from God's love. Isn't that awesome to know? And if you don't know that personally, my prayer today is that you would know that profoundly. You would know that in the depth of your soul, that you have a creator who loves you and is pursuing you.